This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading the podcast for Eye on Education from the 17th of June. On our programme today, we focused on gap years and whether or not it's a good idea for pupils to take a break between school and university. We spoke to a professor who allowed their 18-year-old daughter to take a gap year. We also discussed the decision made by the Department of Education to teach science and maths at the new government schools in English rather than Arabic. We asked, what does this move mean for students and will it better prepare them for the future? Former language teacher Lisa Grace Wilson, who's the editor of Teach Middle East, joined us to give us her views. And our My Classroom feature this week focused on a camp that helps kids lose weight right here in the UAE. Basley Shuley from the organisers CPI Education explained how it works. Plus, Emiratis are being trained up to become futurists. But what do those lessons look like? We found out with Saeed Al-Gagawi, who is director of the Dubai Future Academy at the Dubai Future Foundation. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And I am joined in the studio by Zina Zalamea, who has got her finger on the pulse when it comes to schools and education stories. She's been scanning the press, scanning the media uh, and finding out what everyone's talking about in the world of education over the last week. And it's fair to say the shakeup in the government school system continues to make waves. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, Georgia. The new ministers in charge of education held a press conference this week. We hope to have them on the show at some point. But they outlined their vision for the new model of government schools. And the big announcement is that they're going to change the medium of teaching from Arabic to English. They say to prepare pupils for university and work life in the UAE and abroad. Uh, we'd already heard that these uh, there are 10 schools called the Ajial schools or generation schools. They'll be operated by leading private sector education groups. So you're talking to Leem, Aldar Education and Bloom Education. But... Now we know that schools will hire bilingual teachers. You know, they, they'll put up signage in English and Arabic. They'll use uh, visual cues and videos to teach pupils in English. Uh, previously, pupils at the selected government schools, mostly in the Northern Emirates, would study all subjects in Arabic with a lesson set aside for English. So, you know, that's only just one period in class. But this move will affect about 14,000 pupils nationwide. Um, and they're saying that this is just the start, the start you know, Within three years, 28 schools will run under this public-private partnership. Uh, And of course, later on the show, After 12, we'll be discussing the potential impact of this education on students with former language teacher and uh, the editor of Teach Middle East, Lisa Grace Wilson. We'll also learn that English, while it is the most popular language, there are also other languages like uh, Mandarin and Russian that a lot of Emirati students are keen to learn. Wow, that will be really interesting. And meanwhile, uh, something else that Emirati students are going to be learning is how to be a futurist because the Dubai Future Foundation is on the search for the next generation of Emirati futurists. What is this when it's at home, Z? I know. Well, you know, applications are now open for the third batch of the Dubai Future Experts program. It's an initiative designed to empower local talent for uh, future research projects. Uh, later on, we'll be speaking to the director of the Dubai Future Foundation, Saeed Al-Gergawi. Uh, yes, he's director of the Dubai Future Academy. Academy, uh, yeah, exactly. And that's the sort of capacity building arm of the Dubai Future Foundation, which is, of course, now 
has its own headquarters in, you know, the Museum of the Future. future. Exactly. And, you know, every time we speak to a futurist, we've spoken to a couple of futurists on the show. They always blow my mind slightly. Anything they say goes over my head. Yeah, I think, I mean, what's great about Saeed is that he's... uh, I mean, he's a true sort of visionary and he's worked in the field for, for many years. So actually, he's really, really good at describing the future and how it's going to look and how we need to prepare ourselves for it. And specifically what they will be learning in this course. Like, it's only open to uh, top level government employees. So it's not just it's not kids. It's not university students. It's adults who've already been in their profession for a time. And it's you. I just really interested to know how they're going to encourage them to have that mindset. I think it's about a different mindset, which I think we could all do with learning. I mean, I find it hard enough to imagine, for example, a radio broadcast in the metaverse, but that is clearly something we're going to have to do in the very near future. That would be awesome. I know, we need to do it. What we'll do at the end, we'll ask Saeed al Gagawi whether he'd <laughs> consider, like, I know we're not government, well, we're sort of government employees, whether he'd, uh, like, let us apply. I'd love to do it. It'd be amazing. I'm sure he'd let us. I don't think you will. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, there are some uh, at a slightly lower level, you know, for younger kids, for younger Emiratis. uh, There's been an announcement made by Damak Group regarding scholarships. Yeah, the MAC group is to offer 20 million dirhams in school scholarships to Emirati pupils starting this academic year. Now, the business group has assi- has signed an agreement with government on organization, uh, the Knowledge Fund Establishment, to support children in two Dubai institutions that opened last year. Now, the scholarship application process was not revealed, but the school website uh, showed that admissions for the new academic year uh, from the, the 29th of August are now closed. Now, the schools are in Mirdif and Al-Barsha. Uh, they have pupils in preschool to grade five. Senior classes will be added as pupils graduate. Maybe they'll run this program again in the next academic year and there'll be more applicants. Absolutely. Yeah, just open to Emirati children. Uh, the fees are from around 30,000 dirhams to around 40,000 dirhams. And they can get a 100% scholarship uh, just based on merit. Okay, uh, the gap year. It's our big hot topic for the next two hours, I have to say. Uh, We want to know whether you did a gap year, whether it was constructive. Um, If you've never heard of it, uh, it's a mostly European habit, I think, where students basically take a year out in between school and university to either travel or broaden their horizons. I did one. Yeah, yeah. Tell I took, me all about it. Okay, I uh, so I first of all I went to secretarial school. So I worked for the summer. Then I went for at, at the tank museum in Dorset. I learned a lot about tanks, very historic military machines. Oh, um, and then I uh, went to secretarial school for three months. Uh, learned how to touch type and to do shorthand. I worked for three months to earn money, and then I went travelling in Australia, Thailand, and Indonesia for three months. Okay, so initially I thought it was just, you know, traveling, exploring, but you could actually work and learn new things. Yes. Uh, What did you do? Did you do a gap year? No. And my question when we started uh, talking about gap, I think it was a few years ago that we covered gap year on the radio and I asked, what is that? So you just didn't, it's not a thing in the Philippines. It was a completely new notion to me. And I asked this on a Facebook group. Thank you to Dubai Expat Community for letting me post this. And there were so many answers, you know, people from Europe saying, I did the best, you know, gap year, etc. And there were people that said, you know, for example, Agnieszka says, in my home country, it wasn't typical to take a gap year, uh, especially more than 20 years ago. Everybody wanted to go to uni or start working. Plus, it's a concept more popular in 
in richer countries where you don't have to work as soon as possible and uh, the family has some savings in case something goes wrong. Yeah, I have to say, I think it if you look at how people work super hard here to pay for their children's education back home, it feels a bit indulgent for those children to take a year out aged 18 to just, I don't know, see the world and broaden their horizons. I think maybe there's a suggestion that that only happens for quite sheltered children. Yeah, but I really want to know why people do a gap here. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll be joined by Hugh Martin, who is a registrar and a chief administrative officer at the D- British University in Dubai. He joins us live in studio. Very exciting. He's in the green room right now. I wonder if he did a gap here and whether he's uh, all for it. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Uh, Mariella got in touch with us already to say what she thinks about gap years and whether or not they're useful. Luckily, I was able to get a scholarship to repeat my last year of high school, but in America. So I took it. My mother was supportive as she became close to some of my exchange student friends and saw the incredible experience this would be for me. At the end of my exchange year, I stayed on in the United States and did my university studies there in three years. So I actually graduated at the same time as my high school friends back home, but with the difference that I had become fluent in another language and I was able to have a once in a lifetime experience. By the way, Mariela is from Argentina, so she barely spoke English. And when she did the gap here in America, she was fluent in English by the end of her stay there. Oh, well, you see, there you go. That, that was a constructive exercise. She learned loads on her trip. Where, And I feel like I learned a lot on my gap year because, you know, to this day, I'm really fast at typing. And I earned decent money all the way through my university career. Every holiday, I earned decent money. Because I'd done this secretarial course, I was useful. So whereas everyone else went home and did nothing during the holidays, I was out there earning. Admittedly, I spent nearly everything I earned on going out. But (laughs) at least I wasn't spending my parents' money. At least I was spending my own money. Exactly. And you learned something. Well, one prominent educator recently came out with his views. The University of Cambridge's Vice Chancellor, uh, Stephen Toop, has told the Times newspaper that gap year projects in the developing world, such as building schools in Guatemala, could be seen as just virtue signaling. He also suggested that they build less resilience than the everyday lives of students from modest backgrounds. Controversial. Very interesting indeed. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are discussing whether or not a gap year in between school and university is a good idea for teenagers. If you've not heard of it, it is a quite a European habit, I guess. Uh, it's where students take a year out uh, either to travel, work or just broaden their horizons. Uh, And one prominent educator has recently come out with his views. Uh, It's the University of Cambridge's vice chancellor. Uh, He's a chap named Stephen Toop. He told the Times newspaper in the UK that gap year projects in the developing world, such as building schools in Guatemala, could be seen as virtue signalling. And he also suggested that actually they build less resilience than the everyday lives of students from modest backgrounds. Well, it Interestingly, most of the people I know who did gap years were fairly well off. They were, I think everyone sort of had to work to earn the money to do it. But it's fair to say that they weren't struggling 
and they didn't have to rush to go to university because they needed to get the degree over and done with so they can get to work. Uh, so uh, it's interesting views. I'm not sure whether I entirely agree with Stephen too. Now, rather than just uh, get my opinions, we thought it would be a good idea to get an expert on the subject. Uh, so we are joined now in the studio by Hugh Martin. He's the Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai. Hi, Hugh. Thank you for joining us in the studio. Lovely to have you here. Good morning. Good to be here again. Lovely indeed. We've had you on the radio many times, but this is the first time we've actually seen you in person. So I, this feels like a this feels like a moment. It's a exciting. good moment. Uh, okay, let's first of all let's get um, this concept of the gap year out of the way because is it something that you are familiar with uh, as an idea? Did you go on a gap year? Do you know of people who did them? Yes. So the first thing I can say is, um, look, I was one of these people from the modest background that um, uh, Vice Chancellor Stephen Toop talked about. So my parents were primary school teachers. I went to state school uh, and I did a gap year. And I just like you, I think, Georgia, um, my dad was very much, look, if you're going to go off for a year, you're going to have to work. So I worked for six months in my local WH Smith store. Other brands are available. And uh, then I paid that paid for me to go to New Zealand for six months, which a long time ago, as you can tell from my gray hair. But that was so you know, just off the scale exciting. Uh, and a lot of my friends did the same and they were not from, you know, okay, maybe lower middle class backgrounds, but not super wealthy. Um, and I think the terminology is the problem we have. Calling it a year out, uh, a year off, a gap year gives people the idea that you're not doing anything. And I think you, in your intro, gave a really clear indication that you can do an awful lot of constructive things. You know, academics have what they call a sabbatical year. Lawyers and uh, partners in law firms here in Dubai have at least three or four months off every so many years to go off and think. Uh, so other professions do it and we don't ridicule them. So I think we maybe need a different term than gap year. Okay, that's really encouraging because I was a bit worried that I was one of those people that Stephen Tope would say uh, I did. It was sort of a virtue signaling exercise. Although I have to say, I didn't go and do anything particularly constructive while I was traveling. I didn't go and build a school in Guatemala or Africa. I didn't go and teach, uh, which I know that some students go and do. Um, but do you think that it's worth taking that time out from your education to go and do something different. When, let's be honest, there is a bit of a race at the moment to get into the workplace that it's very competitive. And in some ways, you know, the suggestion could be that you just need to crack on and get, and get yourself there rather than sort of shilly-shally around. Mm. And I fully understand it, particularly, I think I've talked about it before, when, when young students now have so much pressure on them from family, society, you've got to get a job, you've got to get out there, and everyone else is out there already. And you need to step back. Just think about how long those children have been in education, primary school, secondary school, or high school, and then uni. If they don't have any gap at all, and sometimes they go on to master's, you're looking at almost 20 years, nonstop education. So all those things, and one of your, your caller mentioned the same thing, all those things you can do in that one year, learn about earning money, learn about traveling, go and meet other cultures prepares you for university in a way that going straight from school actually I would challenge people that say it's only for wealthy people because many wealthy people have been at extremely serious private schools where they don't meet many people different to them going around the world or even just going and working somewhere for a few months gives you a completely different impression and actually I would argue that stands you in much better stead for when you come to graduating. Okay, so at your university, when you look around your sort of year of students as they start in September or October or whenever it is, do you reckon that within a week you could tell which ones had come straight from school and which ones have done a gap year? You can, although I would qualify it here in the, in the Middle East, particularly in, in the UAE. It's a little different. But look, we have a kind of almost enforced gap year for male 
Emirati students because they go off and do their national service. Ah. So straight out of school, they will go and do that now. And I know the national service is changing from 18 months to 12 months now to 11 months. But still, that's a, a significant amount of time that they go off and they do military training. It's not the same as the gap year that you and I did, but it's a, it's a difference from school. It's very different. And, and I'm, I imagine that must teach quite a lot of... It must harden them up, I'd have thought. I think so. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't want to even put myself as an expert in the UAE's national service, but it certainly changes them because they go from school at 18, when we all know boys at 18, perhaps need a little bit of roughening up or, or a little bit of world experience, um, whereas the women that come from school tend to come straight in. And where I see the gap year then, which we've not discussed very often, is the gap year between undergraduate and master's. And if you really push me, that's the one I think that's most important of all, because going straight into a master's adds another, what, two, three years on, and you're coming out in your mid-twenties, and everyone else has already got a job. So my advice is, if you're not going to do it at 18, do it at 22 when you graduate. Take a year then, before you enter the world of work, because look, look at us, we're in the world of work for the rest of our lives. So take that opportunity then, and that will really change your perspectives. Okay, so if you're going to, in a sort of peak perfect world uh, before the students come to you or in between their sort of undergraduate and masters what do you think people should actually do ideally during that year should they go and teach in Africa should they go and build a school in Guatemala or should they just work for six months save like crazy and then go and see the world for six months Okay, so I'm going to be a little bit controversial in the sense that I kind of agree with Stephen from Cambridge on his point about the virtue signaling. Because I think what he's saying is, look, it, it, it doesn't come across particularly well to some people. He may not be criticising it, but we have this example from the 60s and 70s in the US. They used to call it the Peace Corps. And very well-meaning, earnest middle-class kids went off to third world countries and said, look, I, you know, I'm 17, but I'm going to come and teach you English, which is a little bit, you know, uh, patronising. Whereas I think, I'm not saying what you, you and I did is perfect, but I honestly think it gave me and and from what you said it gave you a real opportunity to see both earning money learning a skill and then just traveling i did i like you i didn't go and and do anything worthy i did a bit of fruit picking in new zealand that's what you do but mostly i'd saved up enough money to take those six months for myself and my mind was totally open and i went you know via the far east to new zealand it's such a long way i spent a few weeks in bangkok a few weeks in singapore these kind of things is what i would suggest people do i think that's way better than saying you've got to go off and do something worthy and important because you're 18 and you know unless unless you're really driven i think there's later time in life when you can do that really interesting to get those views i want to keep you with us for just a few minutes time and and certainly i got the travel bug from that trip that i took uh, you know it it my my trip to australia and then on to thailand and indonesia it literally bore no resemblance to the holidays that i'd been with my family and i remember a key moment inside we landed at night we were in bali i mean completely safe we were in bali and and we we landed late went straight to our hotel room and i remember lying in bed the next morning and hearing the world around us waking up and feeling genuinely scared about going out into it. And I mean, that shows you how sheltered I was aged 18. I was genuinely nervous about stepping out into that world, into Asia. Um, and certainly that's just one example of like a tiny hurdle that I had to get over aged 18 um, that I think that every teenager should experience that moment of of fear ultimately and then overcoming a slight fear and, and, and having their eyes completely open to, to a wider world. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to U7. 
Yes, we're discussing whether or not a gap year in between school and university is a good idea for teenagers. So many people getting in touch with us with what they got up to. Uh, But if you've not heard of a gap year, it's that habit where students take a year out uh, in between their studies to either work, travel or broaden their horizons. Joining us now is a family who who actually made the decision. Uh, Amber Alfonso is a Dubai mum. She's currently in Germany for her daughter Esther's graduation and uh, both Esther and Amber join me now on Microsoft Teams. Hi, how are you doing, Amber? Thank you so much for joining us to both of you. Thank you so much for having us. It's lovely. Oh, hi there. It's lovely to have you here. I've also still got in the studio with me uh, Hugh Williamson, uh, sorry, Hugh Martin, who is Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai. Hugh, I'll get you to put your headphones on because then you'll be able to hear uh, our guest here on Microsoft Teams. Uh, So tell me, uh, Esther, you are graduating this week. What are your plans for the next year? And did you do a gap year? That's the key question. Um, so I'm graduating this week. Actually, I graduated two years ago, um, but due to COVID, we were not able to celebrate it. So right now we're able to and we're here. That's awesome. So um, you're in Germany now for that celebratory period. But did you do a gap year between school and uni? Yeah, I did a gap year just after I finished school. So after my 13th year. Um, it was unintentional and not very planned, but it happened and I think it happened for the best. That's so interesting. And what did you do with your year? Because I understand you didn't actually go traveling. Um, yeah, I think we just went for a short holiday to Georgia, but that's the the base of the traveling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but most of it was to focus on my music. So I had just released my debut album, Solitaire, at 17 or at 18. I got signed to Universal Music at 17. Um, I got nominated for the Emirates Women Awards in Dubai for the Best Young Talent. I performed at Beats of the Beach Festival in Abu Dhabi uh, in front of over 50,000 people. Wow. Uh, What else did I do? I collaborated with Red Bull on a new project they had called Bell Sodfa, where you meet an unknown artist and collaborate in a day. So it sounds Um, to me like you basically worked for a year. Like you can call it focusing on my music, but essentially it sounds like you worked, which is a very uh, brave and constructive thing to do. Amber, how did you... How, how did Esther persuade you to, to let her do that? Because I know that traditionally in Indian families, people don't take a gap year. Well, at that point of time, we did not know where her schooling or studying should go, which direction, whether she should go into, say, business administration and uh, keep music uh, as a priority, but have a backup plan so that in case the music career fails, she has something else to do, or whether she should just concentrate on music. And financially, I was not that uh, great uh, uh, at that point of time. I mean, my, my position was not that great for me to put her, say, in in New York f- for music or anything like that. And you want to mention that you're a single mom. And I'm a single mom, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, well, I mean... And so- I raised her myself alone with financially. So it had it was quite a difficult time for me to decide what I need, you know, what she needs to do because... 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds really interesting, though, because traditionally in families where money is a bit tight, the idea is to get your kids educated and through university and out the house earning decent cash as quickly as possible. So it's amazing that you gave Esther that space to, to try the music career. Yes. I mean, I used to be a musician before, so I know what it is to want to be a musician. And uh, for me, her talent was really so good. I could not like oversee the talent, you know. And in fact, I'm the one who found the college for her to study music. And she was pretty surprised because I kept saying, no, no, you need to have a backup plan. You need to do something where you will earn money, you know, because music doesn't pay the bills. (laughs) And the plan was to study media in a university in Dubai. Um, But yeah, for me, like being able to go abroad and study was just a life changing experience. I can imagine. So what did you actually study? What are you um, getting your degree in over the next week? So I'm get, getting my bachelor's in arts, uh, specialized in songwriting at BIM University, which is British and Irish Institute of Modern and Modern Music, but it's based in Berlin. Um, so I got to move in Berlin and do different modules that surrounded songwriting. I learned theory, history, culture, just so much to do with it. And I got to work with amazing, amazing um, students as well and my friends. So I got to release an album as well, working with a producer from a university. And so how much did that year off before you started your degree inform your studies? Because I imagine you'd had that you had this real bedrock of experience to build upon. Um, I think it gave me a really good base. And to be honest, like, I think I started my music career when I was 17. I got very lucky during my journey um if you may know the whole thing with jesse J as well so i got to start my career quite young um but i also got to experience just so much more in that year because i had always balanced music with my education and this was a time where i could just breathe and really think about what i wanted to do with my career Oh, well, it's great to speak to you, Esther. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the best with your music career and Amber as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. It's been great. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. So we've still got Hugh in the studio. Uh, I'm going to turn to you to get your sort of reaction to what we just heard there. Hugh Martin, the Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai. I mean, that is a a sort of classic case study where the year off informs the degree and and it is truly constructive. Totally. And I I would say, actually, um, obviously, you know, both Amber and Esther will know much more about what benefit that brought. But just listening to him, you, you hear uh, how mature Esther is already. And I know she's graduating now and after uh, doing her degree. I'd almost flip it and say her gap year was so formative that I'm really impressed she decided to carry on to college. Because so many people, especially in the music and arts biz, will say, oh, no, actually, I've got a, an album. I think I've got a producer. I'm not going to bother with college now. But she persisted. So for her, with all that success, I guarantee when she was at college in Germany that she had so much more experience than the other students. Yeah. Because she'd done that. And now I think it's given her a head start in her chosen career. And even if she doesn't carry on in music forever, she's got that 
qualification and all those friends she made in Germany, which she wouldn't have had if she'd just say, oh, you know, forget it. I'm just going to go straight out and release an album now and that's it. But now you've just touched on that, that I think would worry, something that would worry parents. Because if you are super keen for your child to go on and do a proper big grown-up degree in medicine or architecture, you know, something that lasts a long time, they go off and do the gap year. They find out what it's like to have a little bit of cash in your back pocket. But let's be honest, you know, they're working as a cashier like I did in a museum or you know in a in a service focused job and they could easily progress further if they did their degree but you know they're tempted right they've got the cash they're having some fun you know why why am I going to go back and study and be broke mum yeah, I, I see that, although I think I draw a line again. I think genuinely someone like Esther, if I'd been Esther, I'd be thinking, no, I'm not sure I want to go to college now. I've got all the excitement of the music industry around me. For me, for you, maybe, yeah, we were working as cashiers, literally. We then travelled. I, I think we were ready for uni, and I think it would have taken a lot for us to say, because we travelled as well. If we just worked as a cashier for 12 months, that's different. You get into the career, you get into them offering you a you know, promotion and so on. But no, we'd already had the travel, and that broke us from the cashier mould, if I can call it that, into going to uni and moving. Moving on, so I don't. I, I wouldn't worry about that. I think that the, the worry I have is where parents say, um, you know, not, they're not as forward-thinking as Amber. They no, don't do music, don't do any arts-based things. Whatever you do needs to be towards your career. Look, they're eighteen. Let them, let them do that getting scared when they arrive in Bangkok at the middle of the night or Bali, uh, Bangkok for me, Bali for you, or going, you know, backpacking when it is scary. And it is, that's the point of it. It's not meant to be, this is another step on your career and, and you're already on the promotion ladder. Really interesting stuff. Uh, Mariella lives in Dubai. She's a mum of two boys in primary school. Uh, she did a gap year in high school. She's got in touch with us. She said she absolutely loved it. Have a listen to this. When I was in high school in Argentina, I met exchange students from all over the world, which was a fascinating experience. I wanted to do the same, but I was in my last year of high school, and while I knew some English, I was not fluent enough to attend university abroad. Luckily, I was able to get a scholarship to repeat my last year of high school, but in America, so I took it. My mother was supportive as she became close to some of my exchange student friends, and so the incredible experience this would be for me. At the end of my exchange year, I stayed on in the United States and did my university studies there in three years. So I actually graduated at the same time as my high school friends back home, but with the difference that I had become fluent in another language and I was able to have a once in a lifetime ex- experience. Now, not only I would allow my kids to do it, but I would encourage and support them all the way. Okay, so so far, everyone seems to be coming out in favour of the gap year. Huge thanks to Hugh Martin, Registrar and Chief Administrative Officer at the British University in Dubai, and also to Amber. Amazing to have you both on, and Esther as well. Have a good day. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We're going to talk about now uh, one of the hot topics that doing is the round on Mums What app groups because there are debates on how much each parent should contribute towards an end-of-year gift for teachers. Zena, you've been, you've been getting lots of people get in touch with you about this. I know, but personally for me 150 dirhams per mom, that's the like the absolute maximum. Uh, Julie Malin, Malin texted in Brave Georgia because of your rant just then. Uh, Amanda disagrees with you. We get presents for them because they have a very personal relationship
relationship with our children. As parents, we entrust them with our most important humans. But, but then, David, doctors, no, no, no. We trust doctors with that. Doctors uh, are, are do far more for the children. We don't give doctors end of term presents. Well, it's very different because the p- teachers take care of your little ones every day, day in, day out. And when you had to do distance learning, you had a newfound appreciation for teachers. Yeah, I mean, they don't, don't they deserve they're this? They're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. They're paid. They're developing their careers. They're doing a vocation that they love. You know, most of them are not getting a pay rise in the next academic year. This is the least you can do for them. No one is getting a pay rise in the next academic year. We should all be getting a pay rise of at least 4% because of inflation. No one is. No one's getting a pay rise. If your child, you know, just the look on your child's face when they give the gift to your teacher. I mean, that's, oh, isn't that more than enough? you feel guilty. <laughs> I want a present. I want 2,400 dirhams for turning up. Okay, that is the question. Are you going to give something towards, you know, the teacher's gift? And what's a good gift for teachers? Nothing too expensive, nothing too cheap, nothing tacky. Just cash. They're all just being given cash now. I've heard a lot of, you know, moms saying a gift card would be best. But I think, you know, something more thoughtful, maybe. Okay, get in touch with your views. Um, I'm, I'm partly serious, to be honest. I like, I don't, I don't get a present. I don't know why they should, why should, I mean, it's all right. You may be a box of chocolates, but 2,400 dirhams in a, in a gift card, you know, he's going to go wild in Barney's or what's the main shop? Harvey Nicks. He can have the time of his life. He's going to be wearing designer clothes for the next two years. <laughs> thanks to the end of term present. What happened to like a soap? Soap, bar of chocolate. Come How on. How about a handmade card and a smile? I'll give you a handmade card and a smile. <laughs> Mira has just got in touch on WhatsApp, 04871 saying, imagine dealing with 20 to 30 kids eight hours a day, plus all the grading and extra work requests. Teachers do more than just teaching the curriculum. Uh, I pointed out that doctors don't get presents. Uh, Mira says, a doctor sees your kids for 30 minutes and then moves on to the next one. Plus, they have assistance. Teachers shape your kids. Mira, thank you very much for your point. Very well made. Andrea's got in touch. She agrees with me. Thank goodness someone agrees. Uh, No presents for teachers. They change every year and I don't feel they have an attachment to our children. But there's lots of other comments coming in, aren't there, Z? Teachers work from home. What happens in classes? 15% of the work. Uh, Glenn actually agrees with you. I pay the school fees on time every year. I don't get a gift, just a bill. Uh, Another one, the biggest problem is when they don't do their job and you're expected to contribute. Ouch! That's from Sandra. Adil says, this is ridiculous to gift a teacher each year. I fully agree with Georgia. By the way, I'm not just picking the ones where people agree with me. I fully agree that teachers are doing their job uh, for which they get a salary. And don't tell me that teachers aren't receiving a pay hike this year, so we should give them gifts. Which company is giving a pay rise in these bad times? No one. Thank your stars for having a job. Adil, drawing a straight line there. Thanks, Adel. Uh, we've got another message. Georgia teachers get paid peanuts and have the most important job in the world, along with nurses, also paid peanuts. That of teaching our loved ones in dealing with their tantrums, abilities or lack thereof. They play such an important role in the development and happiness of our kids. I think they deserve this little financial recognition. 
I think my teachers, my school's teachers are absolutely brilliant. But I think that £2,400, sorry, dirhams, £2,400 dirhams is a little bit excessive. I think a hand-drawn card and a box of chocolates or a mug that says the world's best teacher should suffice. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. It's fair to say there has been a pretty big shake-up at the Department of Education. Uh, Their latest announcement was that science and maths will be taught in English rather than Arabic at the new model of government schools. These new Agile schools, or Generation schools, are going to hire bilingual teachers. They're going to put signs up in English and Arabic, and they're going to use visual cues and videos to teach pupils English. Now, previously at these government schools, which are mostly in the Northern Emirates, would study everything in Arabic. Arabic and they just have a lesson set aside for English. Um, but now these new schools are going to be managed differently. They're going to be operated by uh, leading private sector education groups like Talim, Aldar Education and Bloom Education. Uh, and also there's going to be this change with the language. About 14,000 pupils nationwide will be impacted by the changes. 10 schools will be seeing the differences at first, but that is going to expand to 28 schools in the next three years. But what does this move mean for students and will it better prepare prepare them for the future. If you've got a child learning at one of these public schools or a dual language school, please do get in touch with your views. It's quite interesting to find out how difficult it is to learn two languages at once. Uh, And we really would love to hear from you. Uh, Joining me now to discuss it in a little bit more detail, uh, we are joined by a teacher, a former language teacher, that is, um, who is now working at Teach Middle East. She's the editor of Teach Middle East. Lisa Grace Wilson, uh, joins us on the line. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Great to speak to you again. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Do you know, I am very, very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss this really important subject. Uh, let's uh, give me a bit of a heads up. What do you think about uh, this move by the schools in the Northern Emirates? You know what it is? I think that the the move is good in, in its sentiments, obviously, we're yet to see what the execution looks like. Um, back in the day when I, I came to this country, I came to Abu Dhabi, and a similar thing was being done with the government schools here in Abu Dhabi, where the, the language of instruction was being changed from Arabic to predominantly English. And at that time, it really looked like a massive mountain to climb. But over the years, it really has settled and students have benefited from the exposure to English and they still get instructions in Arabic, obviously for the Arabic and Islamic moral education subjects, etc. Is it a good move? I would say yes, it is, um, because you find that the way the world is, English is the lingua franca. And so students who don't have that language background in English are inevitably at a disadvantage. Should it replace Arabic? Absolutely not. Arabic is an absolutely beautiful language and should be preserved as much as possible. But the the two have to coexist. It just is the way of the world now, I think. Will the changeover feel difficult? I mean, I just imagine if I was my nine-year-old, for example, if he was suddenly started to be taught science and maths in Arabic, considering his primary language is English, you know, that would really be really tricky for him. I mean, he's got to learn about osmosis in Arabic. That would be a nightmare. 
It's going to be extremely difficult. Listen, let me let me take you back to 2010. So 2009, 2010, when we came out here, all the language was Arabic, all the instruction. So those students were just rusted into this English environment overnight. It was hard. And so no one should underestimate how difficult this is going to be for students. When we walked in there, remember, you know, we're coming from the UK, others are coming from Canada, the United States, and we were all teachers or teacher trainers or advisors, etc. And we were put in these schools to essentially change the language of instruction and obviously the pedagogy to some degree. And the students had no idea. So you can imagine how difficult it was to communicate with them, let alone to teach them very difficult vocabulary. Because you're talking about science, which has a lot of subject-specific vocabulary that's quite jargonistic and quite hard for you to understand, even in your first language, let alone a second language. So we should not underestimate the toll this is going to take on students their parents, the teachers. We have to be extremely patient. This is not going to be an overnight thing. These Agile schools will not suddenly burst out with success from the get-go. It's going to take time um, because the language has to be embedded. You're taking students from literally CFR zero and trying to get them all the way up. So that is going to be a process in itself. If you put yourself in their shoe, if I were thrown in an Arabic classroom at that age, I would literally drown because yeah. there would be no way. I don't know how I, on, know. I don't know how on earth they're going to do it. I wonder whether we don't know yet whether the reality is is that this is going to start at, at the, just at the primary level, just as they, as they first enter the school, rather than plunging the nine and ten year olds in at the deep end. I mean, it might be that that, that report is yet to come out because it does sound. I mean, virtually impossible. I mean, I, I, like, I mean, if you don't know the English word for osmosis, how on earth are you? Uh, if you don't know any of the English words, if you don't know the English word for plant, stem, photosynthesis, you know, any of those things, how on earth are you going to learn about it? I mean, taking it one step back, how hard is it to learn in two languages? Because I know, for example, the Swiss school, the French schools here, you have some lessons in English and some lessons in French. Is it, is it difficult for children to switch swatch between the two in a day? It, it isn't. It becomes second nature. I speak several languages. I used to teach Spanish. Um, and it isn't very difficult if it's embedded early. It really isn't. I'm speaking as a first-hand, second-language speaker of English. Um, it, it really isn't. You have to get to the point with the students where it becomes routine. But like I said, it will take time deliberate practice, and especially if it's immersive, it's quicker than you think. Um, children's brains are very, are very elastic. They, they can, you know, brain plasticity is a thing. It, they can learn it, and they can learn it quite quickly, but it has to be very focused, very deliberate. When they are in the language classroom, they have to get fully immersed in it. Um, and once they get over the, the, the initial barriers and, and the teachers are quite patient and, and going by step by step, then I think they'll do, they'll do fine over time. And I keep stressing time. Time. 
Uh, Lisa, absolutely fascinating to hear from you and to get those insights. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Lisa Grace Wilson there, a former language teacher and now editor of Teach Middle East, giving us a bit of a sense of exactly how that process will work for for children who are starting to learn uh, things like Arabic, uh, sorry, things like science and maths in English rather than their native language of Arabic. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are discussing the impact of languages in schools on the programme today. Now, that's off the back of the Department of Education announcing this week that science and maths will be taught in English rather than Arabic at the new model of government schools. These are the ones that are called Agile schools or Generation schools. They're going to be hiring bilingual teachers. Uh, English is, of course, the most popular language. It's spoken by 1.5 billion people. But did you know that Mandarin is also being taught in some schools here. Uh, The number of public schools teaching Chinese language in the UAE has increased to 142. Basically, there's 73 in Dubai and the northern regions and 69 in Abu Dhabi, Alain and Al-Dafra. That is according to the education authorities. Now, Daniel Rodriguez is from ES Dubai, which is an institution that started six years ago with the objective of teaching English to students from all over the world. But he soon found out that there was a real demand here for learning the Chinese language. Last year, we had like 5,000 students that came to study English in Dubai. So it's very popular. But also we found that there was a demand for other languages, especially when we last year we run a pilot program with the Crown Prince for the Yacht Ambassador program. And they were trying to highly perform, like high performing kids to learn Chinese and to learn Russian as well. And we create the program for them and we deliver to them the first, the, the HSK one, like the first level of Chinese. And we deliver completely online because that was last year. And I think since then they realized the potential for students to learn Chinese. Because I think at this moment it's very important to, to understand how, how big China is and how many oppor- opportunities are with the Chinese. Because also in China, only 1% of people actually speak English. So I think it's a, great, it's a lot of opportunities there. I've seen a lot of demand over the last maybe 12, 16 months. So we start with 50 people and we did it online. And now we're running our, our program around 100 people also online. And it's going very well because people is actually very keen on the idea of learning Chinese over a long period of time because they have seen that there's a lot of education opportunities, business opportunities. And I think people is just realizing that now. I think also in, because of the location of the UAE, learning Chinese is important for people here in this region. Daniel also said that learning a language is also learning about another culture. When they come to our school and they have only one language for them, it's just they're very culturally locked for say something. They, they don't know. They know all the things, but they don't really understand those things. But when they start learning English, when they start experiencing the culture, when they start experiencing the immersion, they really change because they start seeing things differently and their brain operates differently. And there are many articles that they say not only it's not only about learning English, it gives you multitasking skills, mm. improve the cognitive function, improve your mental health as well. So learning languages have many, many benefits. And it's very good for your brain as well. So I think there are like plenty of reasons to keep studying other languages.
Now, the curriculum for these government schools is going to change for the young students and they will be learning English. As a result, their generation is going to be completely fluent in English. But what about those who want to learn but aren't in school anymore? Daniel insists it is never too late to learn a new language. All you've got to do is start. I think the best advice is to try. But when you need to try for language, it's good to try in a good way because it requires commitment. You require like a certain amount of commitment a week, at least six or 10 hours a week of actually learning. Because if not, what happens? You get a very bad experience when you try two hours, two hours a week. You, you don't see, you don't see the progression. You don't see that you're improving. And then it leads to frustration. But when actually you are sitting down and you put six to 10 hours a week to actually learn English, interact with native speakers, to do also cultural activities in that language that will help a lot. So you will change the perception about learning languages. What if you do one or two hours a week, you will see, you will, you will still, it will take so much time and it will lead to frustration mm. if you do not achieve your results in a quickly manner. That's Daniel Rodriguez. He's from ES Dubai, an institution that started six years ago with the objective of teaching English to students from all around the world. Very interesting to hear there about the popularity of Mandarin here in the United Arab Emirates. I wonder what language you guys are learning, whether you're doing something different at school. I know we were always taught French at school. I did German at A-level. Wish I'd done Spanish, to be often honest. It's much more uh, frequently spoken. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Now, at this time, normally we head over to a classroom around the world at an unusual school, at least around the world, but we're not doing that this week. Instead, we're going to camp, but specifically a fat camp for kids right here in Dubai. And in many ways, it's not surprising that it's needed because, according to the latest statistics, obesity rates among children and adolescents in the UAE has reached 17.3%. And to deal with the problem, the Ministry of Health and Prevention is developing a new plan to combat obesity and promote healthy lifestyles among the nation's children and adolescents. But parents are already taking the situation into their own hands and sending their children to weight loss camps. Now, one of these such uh, so-called, I mean, I guess it's a bit mean, but some people call them fat camps. It's run by a company called CPI Education. And I mean, joined now by its president, uh, Basil Shuley. He joins me on Microsoft Teams. Basil, how are you? Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to have you on the radio. Now, do you know, oddly enough, I'm reading a book at the moment by Caitlin Moran, and she suggests that the word fat has almost become like a swear word. And I have to say, I do feel slightly uncomfortable saying the phrase fat camp. Exactly. Do you choose not to call it that? We actually choose not to call it that at all. Uh, we, we start, we, we call it the fitness and weight loss uh, program. Um, we avoid um, marking or labeling the kids as being fat or overweight or any kind of um, label that sets them apart from the from the rest. Actually, just, just to uh, clarify the picture a little bit more, we are actually a, a boarding school throughout the year. So we're like a boarding school. Um, we cater to high school kids and we offer an American curriculum throughout the year. Um, this is a specialization that we offer during the summer. The fitness and weight loss program is simply a residential program that um, um, specializes in lifestyle change. So um, we, we are considered the lifestyle experts within the K-12 uh, education industry. 
Um, like any other school um, that offers a residential program and um, a fully accredited high school diploma program, we focus on the lifestyle education. Mm -hmm. So schooling becomes only a small part of what we do and we work on the lifestyle. We believe that um, if you sort out the lifestyle uh, issues, then you would achieve uh, plenty uh, within the academic goals that you have for your kids, the development, character developmental goals as well, uh, fitness, their weight loss, their uh, talents. So we tackle education from the point of view of um, um, a lifestyle mm -hmm. uh, change. So, so tell me, how much do the children that come to your school weigh? How big are okay. they? So basically, um, not necessarily, uh, you know, we, we have kids who are who are not overweight. We have kids who are here for, for fitness, simply, you know, to gain fitness. We have kids who are here uh, because they want to join a professional football program along with the academic program. So this is how we don't mark. So it's just one program that's run for, you know, we have kids who come to us to learn English. We have kids who come to us to learn, um, you know, physics or chemistry, whatever. Um, but we, they come here with their specific specialization. So they're not marked. We take them through a lifestyle cycle that says that you have to spend part of the day adding value to your mind, part of the day looking after your body physically, and part of the day for spiritual and and um, uh, social uh, well-being. So we take them out. So uh, just to give you an idea, mornings would be dedicated to classes. So they'd be doing their English, their math, their science, their technology, whatever. But they'd also be doing nutrition if their focus is fitness and weight loss. So and if their goal is uh, professional soccer development or football development, they're they're doing soccer then. Um, so it's just a specialization. In the afternoon, everyone, irrespective of what your specialization is, has to go through a fitness, a fitness session, a daily fitness session. It's really uh, good that you don't mark the children out because I imagine many of them must feel quite self-conscious. And, and, and absolutely. You, as you mentioned there, it's a boarding school. Where are the children yeah. coming from? Are they, are they just from the UAE? Well, we've been, we've been in Dubai since 2001. So it's our 21st year. Um, our kids come in from all over. We have kids coming in from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, from the GCC in general, from Russia, from the CIS block, basically Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. We have kids coming in from Jordan, from Lebanon, and from North Africa, from Egypt, Tunisia, etc. So they're coming in from all over. We have kids coming in from Germany and from the UK as well. Wow. So it's it's always a you know it's a Dubai mix. Let's put it that way. It's a Dubai Classic. mix and. Um, it's a it's a it's a lifestyle program. So it's a residential program. They live, they learn the self-discipline, the responsibility, looking after themselves. And once you know the goal for this is why we don't like to call it fat camp. We are not a fat camp. Um, uh, we were actually thinking of even revising. How can we? deal with, uh, you know, this weight loss label as well. Well, do you know, I have to say, I think that maybe the sensitivities around that is partly societal. I think I think people have yes. become a lot more tense around um, uh, people putting on weight. I think it's become much more of a politicized issue rather than maybe just the health issue that arguably it ought to be. Can I ask what age group do you have at the boarding school? How so, so basically we deal with kids who are seven years old all the way to 17. Um, um, we divide them into age groups. 
And they do, by the way, they don't all come in for weight loss. Believe it or not, we have kids who come in for weight gain. Uh, <laughs> uh, I remember, it's, oddly it's, enough, we had um, girls at school, at my school, who needed to, to, to gain weight. And I think yeah. they went to special establishments as well. Yes. Um, I and, mean, does it work? Do you see lasting okay. changes? You see, this is, this is one of the things that parents, you know, um, it's a misconception. They walk in and their first question is, how many kgs, how many kilos are the kids going to lose in three weeks or six weeks? This, this is how long our summer program is for. And we tell them it's not, it's not about weight loss. It does. It definitely does work. The kids do lo- lose weight, but it's the beginning of the story. So what we do here is we bring them in for three weeks. How much do you expect them to lose? You know, some parents don't have, you know, the, the expectations are that they lose 15 kgs in a month. It can be done, but it's extremely unhealthy and it will come back. I'm, I'm talking from experience. I'm someone who struggled with weight loss and weight gain throughout my life. This is why we started this um, program back in 2014 as a uh, side to to our educational programs. So we tell the parents the goal of the weight loss, the fitness and weight loss program is to get the kids into a lifestyle pattern, take them out of their existing environment, existing, you know, circles, their social circles, um, and put them in a place where they can reset their lifestyle. They can redefine what they do, how they, how they spend their day. It's not about convincing them to, you know, hold back on food. Actually, our kids who are on the fitness and weight loss program do everything else that all the other kids um, uh, who join us uh, uh, do. So their their daily routine is morning classes, afternoon sports and evening trips. So they do go to the cinema, for example, but they make choices when they go to the cinema. They make, you know, they choose what to eat. They still have some snacks, but it's not what they would usually have. Yeah. And we wouldn't make those choices for them. By the way, their, their meals in the fitness and weight loss program are exactly the same meals that are served to everyone else. It's the same food, but it's about portion control. It's about them having the self-discipline to you know, decide how they want to eat that food. And if we can change that mindset, weight loss, we tell parents, should take a year to two years to come down to your ideal, you know, your, or what you think is your ideal, uh, ideal uh, weight. But we don't want the kids to do it fast. We convince them not to attempt losing weight very quickly. Personally, I've lost 70 kgs in three months, but I've put it back on. And um, uh, I'm, I'm not the weight loss expert. So the, the deal, the, the, we have, we have um, uh, specialists dealing with, with this division. Yeah. But occasionally what I do is I, I go on onto, the, onto their program and I show them pictures of myself a year or two years back and how, how you can actually get results. But it has to be long-term results. So parents who are looking for a short-term solution should not, you know, we, we advise them not, not, to, not to come to us with it. We want the kids to change their lifestyle, manage their lifestyle. It's a lifelong process. And I, we, we tell the kids this is a, you know, this is a life life you can you can lose weight in a year in two and be extremely healthy but it's keeping it off that's the challenge so unless you change your lifestyle it'll come back do and you that's, know, you know I'm, 
It sounds exactly. like a brilliantly holistic program. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I've, I've, we've got to go to our break, but it sounds like a brilliantly holistic program. Uh, it's a boarding school and you can go over the summer for three to six weeks, uh, CPI education and helps uh, children with the, with that weight loss. Uh, and it sounds like you've been doing very good work there for the last 21 years. Uh, Basil Chaldi there, uh, president of CPI education. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. Appreciate. This is Eye on Education on the agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Now, the Dubai Future Foundation is on the search for the next generation of Emirati futurists. Applications are now open for the third batch of the Dubai Future Experts programme, which is an initiative designed to empower local talent for what they're calling future-orientated research and projects. It's an 18-month programme. It's open to middle and top-level government employees across key sectors. And its third session will begin in September. It has two modules and they each run for six months. So you're signing up for a decent stretch of time, it's fair to say. Uh, to discuss the programme, I'm joined on the line now by Saeed Al-Gagawi, who is Director of the Dubai Future Academy, which is the capacity building arm of the Dubai Future Foundation. I'm very grateful to welcome you on the line, Saeed. Thank you so much for your time. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm very well indeed. It's been a while since I last spoke to you, but you guys have certainly been busy opening a museum of the future and doing plenty of these courses. Um, Tell me a little bit about the aim of this program, because it's intriguing. Yes, no, absolutely. I think so. This is actually one of the first uh, programs in the world that turns government experts. uh, And and we have many who are technically and administratively experts in in different fields and in, in Dubai in particular, and turning them into futurists. Uh, we know today that many sectors are being uh, disrupted. They're being turned, uh, 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 turned, and they're being um, uh, changed from from the core. Uh, so we need futurists not just at, at the high levels uh, of organizations, but throughout, from the bottom to top of, of of government organizations. So what what we do in the, in the program is we take. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Emirati uh, um, government employees who are from mid to top uh, levels of management and put them through a rigorous uh, uh, first level of the program uh, that teaches them uh, on disruptive uh, innovation and foresight. Uh, then it teaches them, um, you know, uh, a, a concept called super forecasting. Uh, and trying to forecast different aspects when it comes to the future to a certain degree of accuracy, scenario planning, integrating uh, what they've learned into the real world, uh, making sure that you know any uh, foresight exercise, any research that they do has some linkage to what's uh, to the realities of of Dubai and the UAE and the region. And, and then finally, the final uh, uh, module of the first level is being able to tell the story of the future. If you are an expert, uh, if, if you are great at what you do, but you cannot communicate it, then um, not a lot of people would hear your message and uh, it will just stay within a, a silo. Um, as such, that's the first, uh, that's a big focus of ours. And then what we do is we take the best of the best of that batch and then they go for another uh, um, six months intensive research uh, 
for within the program. So they go back to their organizations or back to their sectors, and they do an in-depth review of uh, their sector. So for example, last year, and each year it's a different question. Last year we asked them, um, how should your organization look like in the year 2071? So they need to be able to build scenarios, uh, be able to foresee what, um, uh, what trends, what developments that may be happening in the region, in Dubai, in the UAE, and how should their organizations be able to adapt to that and make use of it um, uh, 50 years down the line. Um, so, and, and then what we end up doing at the end, uh, just I'm wrapping up, I'm sorry, um, is to, uh, they, they end up presenting to these stakeholders and the sector owners within Dubai and the UAE. And these guys who are making the decisions on the sector tell them and, make, and uh, are able to make use of this research if they uh, see it. Don't worry about wrapping up. We want to hear from you, not me. But I'm just intrigued as to what these lessons look like, because I imagine the primary thing you have to do is change people's mindset, maybe, from just dealing with the everyday to mm-hmm. really forecasting way forward. To, I mean, as far as, you know, 2071, that, that's, that's a decent stretch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so, so one, one sort of exercise that we, we, we tend to do is we try to imagine ourselves 50 years ago, right, uh, in the start of, of the UAE, the country, um, and how that may, um, if, if you were back then in 50 years' time, imagine your grandparents, your parents, would you have been able to foresee or to be able to uh, view Dubai or the UAE as it is today? I wouldn't, that's for sure. And, and so I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to stop you then because uh, we've reached the top of the hour, so it's time for the rather practical oh, uh, news. But let's get you on again, please, because it would be amazing sure, to speak sure. about more about what the Dubai Future Foundation is doing. I know you've got a lot of concurrent projects at the moment, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be bothering you to try and get you on again next week, if at all possible. Please, please do, no worries. Thank you very much indeed. Saeed Al-Gagawi there, Director of the Dubai Future Academy, which is the capacity-building arm of the Dubai Future Foundation, a job that I would like to have, but sadly, probably I'm not qualified to do. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.